Good morning all, lovely to see you. And a special thanks to Kate and my girls for uh, leading and singing this morning. I'm very grateful to them for being prepared to do that. Thank you. Um, just uh, to let you know that Rosemary is not the only one with a significant birthday this week. Helen Morrow and David Marritt also have particularly significant birthdays. Far be it from me to tell you the exact number. I'll leave you to work that out for yourselves, but uh, happy birthday to them. Let's turn uh, then to Romans chapter 7. If you've got a Bible, do have it in front of you, verses 7 to 13, as we continue our series in Romans and we get to this passage. I don't know if you, like me, at some point have had the buff envelope come through your uh, letterbox and you've opened it and it has confirmed what you dreaded, that the pesky speed camera has indeed snapped you. How did you respond when that happened? Were you angry with yourself? Well, quite likely. Or were you cursing the camera? Well, perhaps that was quite likely too. What about those others? What about those boy racers speeding around the estate uncaught? And there you were doing three, four, five miles an hour over the limit. Or imagine another scene. Imagine a court case. Everyone knows that the defendant did it. But his wily defence lawyer gets him off on a technicality. How do you feel about the law at that point? Well, neither of those scenarios are brilliant illustrations of what Paul is talking about here, but they do bring into question our attitude to the law. How do we think about the law? Paul has explained, as we saw last time, how God's good law, the law of Moses, the law given to Israel, how that is actually powerless to break the bond between us and our sinful nature. In fact, in some ways, the law only makes uh, makes things worse as it uh, spurs us or stimulates or prompts us into sin. Uh, Paul, uh, and so that prompts this question. Uh, um, is the law sin? That's what Paul says. Is the law sin? Is there something fundamentally flawed about God's law? Well, given that the law was God's good gift to his people, Israel, Paul's answer probably won't surprise us. He says, by no means, certainly not. It's not sin. It's not, it's not the origin of sin in that sense. You know, there's a huge debate surrounding this chapter. I don't know if you're aware of it. It basically surrounds the identity of the person Paul is talking about. Who is the I in Romans chapter 7? That pronoun, I, appears regularly throughout chapter 7, particularly as the verses go on. Well, you might say, isn't he? he's just talking about himself, isn't he? Well, uh, if so, if he is talking about himself, is he to what point in his life is he talking about? You know, as believers, we identify all too readily with what he says in verse 19, as, as he goes on uh, in the passage we'll see next week. For what I do is not the good I want to do, no, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. We all identify with that. 
But look what he says in verse 23. Uh, in verse 22, in my inner being, I delight in God's law. Verse 23, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. A prisoner of the law of sin, being captive to the law of sin. How is that consistent with what he said, what we saw in chapter 6, when he talks about believers being set free from slavery to sin and death and so on. Perhaps Paul's talking about his life before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. But what we know of Paul back then, doesn't that really back that up? In Philippians, he describes his attitude back then. He describes himself as being, as to legalistic righteousness, faultless. That doesn't sound like someone racked with guilt and feeling a failure before his conversion. And then we have uh, verse 9 in the passage we've read this morning. Once I was alive apart from the law. When commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. Now some people see this as a progression through Paul's life. He was alive apart from the law in his innocent infancy. Uh, Then there came a dawning realisation of his inability to keep the law. But it does raise the question, how could Paul or anyone else actually have been alive apart from the law? Surely that was only really true of Adam and Eve before they disobeyed the command in the garden because otherwise all, all human beings have been born into sinfulness. That's what the Bible tells us elsewhere. Others have felt that he's talking about humanity's story. This is the story of humanity in general. He's using I like we might use we, or perhaps more pretentiously, one. He's talking about humanity in general, not only perhaps individuals, but but the great sweep of humanity. Or maybe, and, and some people argue this very convincingly, he's actually talking about Israel's history. Certainly Paul would have had a much stronger corporate identity than we tend to have today. And there is a very real sense, and we looked at this when we looked at the whole in Adam and in Christ thing, there's a real sense in which as Adam was the head of humanity at the start there, we were there with him in the garden. He did that on our behalf. And we'll pick up uh, this argument next time. Who is this I? Now personally, I struggle to see how Paul can be talking just about himself here. Or about any other individual believer, for reasons that will become clear as we move into chapter 8, which will be sometime in the autumn. But neither do his words ring true of individual unbelievers either, people who are not yet Christians. People trying to keep God's laws but failing. I'm inclined to agree with that more corporate understanding that uh, perhaps this is a combination of both in Adam, humanity... And also from that, actually, yes, the story of Israel. And maybe as we see that, Paul is well aware that there are actually uh, parallels to his own experience along the way. But back to the question that Paul poses. If the law is powerless to deliver us from sin, does that mean the law is sinful? Does that mean the law is something bad? And if so, why on earth did God give it to Israel In the first place. Well, no, says Paul, it's not bad. He says in verse 12, 
So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. And he goes on, does that which, does that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment sin might be utterly sinful. It is powerless to break the bond with our sinfulness, but the truth is it was never designed to do that. If that's what it was designed to do and it had failed to do, then yes, what was the point of the law? But it was never designed to do that. Instead, the law was actually designed to enable sin to be recognized as sin. To show it up, that's the first thing we see here. We see that the law reveals sin. That's what God designed it to do. You know, the fact that something wonderfully good like God's law that that actually leads us further down sin's path. That demonstrates just how sinful sin is. It constantly takes God's good gifts and spoils them. He does that again and again and again. It shows us that, as J.C. Ryle would put it, the exceeding sinfulness of sin. It shows us its horror. All that is shown up. Actually, before it reveals to us the nature of sin, it first of all reveals God's character to us. That's perhaps the first um, uh, role of the law. It shows us what God is like. The values enshrined in the law, God's law, the Mosaic law, they're God's values. And they reveal reveal his character, that he is good, that he is just, he loves justice. It reveals his purity, his holiness. And in contrast to that, it shows up our sinfulness. It's just like that bright light shining into the dark recesses of the understairs cupboard, revealing the cobwebs lurking there. So Paul says, uh, as at the start of the passage, what should we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. I would have not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. It's interesting that he mentions this last of the Ten Commandments, do not covet. Uh, do not hanker after what other people have got. Um, you know those other commandments, do not steal, do not lie, do not commit adultery. When you break those, you break those externally and the results are seen externally. You know, it's possible that somebody could say, well, I've never stolen anything, never committed adultery. But do not covet. Don't hanker after what other people have. That's internal. You know, you can be very, very respectable. You can be squeaky clean on the outside. And yet your heart could be seething with greedy desires. And actually the Bible says that's exactly what it's like for all of us. That's exactly what our hearts are like. Now the truth is, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, all the commandments, not just the tenth, but all the commandments, when correctly understood, express not, um, expose not just external actions, but also the heart. Do you remember what Jesus says? Do not, it's been, it has been said, do not commit adultery. I tell you, if you look lustfully at someone, you'll be at someone, you've broken that already. You've broken that one. The law exposes the heart, which is where sin starts. And without the law, without God's word, we don't see sin. It doesn't mean that we're not sinners, but we just don't see it 
so clearly. And that's why, that's one reason why it's so good to read the Old Testament. Not just the first five of the book, the first five books which we call the books of the law, but actually the whole Old Testament. It does reveal God to us for a start, gloriously, but it also reveals the heart of mankind, humankind to us, which is not so glorious. You know, I'm ploughing through um, two kings at present and... uh, Some of it, frankly, is just gross. Jehu asking for the heads of the 70 sons of Ahab. That's gross. It's certainly not proportionate. It's horrific. Now, we could just dismiss that as culturally antiquated. But it's not culturally antiquated, actually. It's just revealing our hearts to us. Where these murderous, hateful thoughts lie that think that if developed and given the opportunity would just wipe a whole, try and wipe a whole family out because they're in our way. That's where those murderous, hateful thoughts lie. I love the writings of Marilyn Robinson and in her, one of her books, Home, she describes the protagonist remembering hearing her pastor father preach in the old chapel. And she puts he, she describes his preaching like this, passing the broken heart of humankind and praising the loving heart of Christ. I love that. That's what we do when we preach God's word. That's what we do when uh, we read about God's revelation of himself. Yes, we, we, we pass the broken heart of humankind. We see in detail just what wrecks we are and we praise the loving heart of Christ God in his grace has revealed in Christ the law points to both of those actually and then secondly we see the first of all the Lord reveals secondly the Lord provokes sin doesn't just reveal sin it provokes sin we saw this last week It's the do not throw stones at this sign syndrome. How can you resist? I remember um, not so long ago, I was out for a Friday walk and um, I felt the need to answer nature's call, as happens on these occasions. And on those occasions, of course, you just look for any convenient cover. Now, I happen to be next to an open gate uh, with some handy bushes the other side of the gate. But there was a sign on the gate... And the gate said, private property. Now, it was just a field. It wasn't somebody's garden or something. It was just a field. But, you know, there's nothing like a private property sign to stir up the rebel in me. So I headed through the gate and into the bushes. That's sin in me, isn't it? That's sin. Why shouldn't I? Why should they have exclusive right to all that land? I just... Why can't I just go and use their bushes? Why shouldn't I? Why should I have to stick to the speed limit? Why should I listen to God's rules? He just wants to spoil my fun. Now the law doesn't actually generate that attitude in us. It's already there. But the law, any command, any prohibitive notice just stirs that up, provokes it, causes it to surface. So verse 8 Sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. 
seizing the opportunity. The Greek word refers to a, uh, or is used in other contexts, of a military base from which sorties are made. You know, think is, is rather like that defence lawyer in the, the as where we started off. The defence lawyer who uses the law to get their guilty client off. Now, that so-called technicality, which is a word I, I hate hearing being used in that context, that technicality is there for a very good purpose. It's there to stop people being framed. It's there to ensure that due process is followed. It's there to stop injustice. But such technicalities can be exploited to acquit a guilty person. Well, here the image is rather swapped around because uh, sin here is not acquitting a guilty person. It's, it's, it's piling up the guilt on us. Sin uses the law as a military base from which to go and cause trouble, stirring up our sinful desires and so condemn us. Verse 9, Paul says, Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. He could mean... Paul could mean that people who don't know the law think they're alive. That's possible. I mean, that could be a nod to his own former self-righteousness. Or it could be a reference to Adam, who before that command was given in the garden, knew unbroken uh, fellowship with, with the Lord, alive in the fullest sense of the word. And the devil used the awareness of the commandment to smuggle in that spirit of rebellion. And that leads to the third thing we see, that the law condemns sin. You know, God's word says, and you see the verses there, Leviticus 18, Deuteronomy 30. God's word says the law was given to bring life. But Paul says, verse 10, I found that that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. You see, when coupled with our sinful nature, the law leads to death, not to life. And notice verse 11. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment, put me to death, condemned me. The deceptiveness of sin there. You know, we think these things will enhance our lives. We think these things will increase our pleasure. But they just spoil life and they lead to death. On our walk on uh, Friday, we were um, seeing these beautiful purple flowers and we, we were learning the difference between thistles, which are looking wonderful at this time of the year, tansies, which look a bit like thistles but aren't, and knapweed, which are similar again. Anyway, thistles. Thistles are looking gorgeous at the moment. But if you were tempted to by, the, by that beautiful purple flowering to go up and seize a thistle, you would regret it. It would hurt. You know, sin is like that. It deceives us. It draws us near with the beautiful flowers. And then it just causes pain and death through its thorns. You know, back in the courtroom scenario, imagine a slightly different situation. Now, imagine someone justly found guilty. They're definitely guilty, as we all are in God's courtroom. Well, it's no good that person railing at the judge. It's not, yes, the judge condemned them, but it was their wrongdoing, actually, that condemned them. The law and the judge, the law acting through the judge, just brought it to light and condemned it. As F.F. Bruce 
memorably puts it, the villain of the piece here is sin, not the law. We see how dreadful sin is, that it takes God's good gifts and exploits them uh, to, to enslave humanity. It takes God's good gift of the law and exploits it to, to bring us into chains. Like it's, we're bit back, back in chapter 1 and 2. Do you remember those sessions on chapters 1 and 2 where again and again and again we were faced with the same message that we're all guilty before God. Well, again, we need to hear how bad our state is before we appreciate the glory of the gospel. This is why we need saving, because sin is so dreadful. We can't just pull our socks up. We can't just try harder. We're at the bottom of the slippery, muddy, steep-sided pit of sin, and we cannot get ourselves out of it. We need someone to reach down which is exactly what God has done in Jesus Christ. And so the law reveals sin. The law provokes sin and the law condemns sin. But then that raises the question, why then did God give the law knowing that it would provoke sin in this way? Why did God give, give us the law if he knew it would have this effect? Well, Paul, Paul says in verse 13, we've already looked at this, let's look at this again. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means, but in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Now, that Paul hints here, he doesn't, he doesn't draw it out fully, but he's hinting at something that begins to show how even this negative property of the law served God's purpose. You know, uh, in the olden days, if you got an infection, people would apply a poultice to draw out the infection. You can still do it today. Magnesium sulfate, I believe, does that sort of thing. Um, The law acts like that. The law draws sin to the surface. The law brings sin into the open so it can be dealt with. If you like, it's a bit like, you know, you don't want to go to the doctors, you don't want to go to the hospital because you might find out something wrong with you, you're going to have an x-ray or a scan or something. Well, the x-ray or the scan reveals what is there so that it can be dealt with. The law, more than that, brings things out brings it out into the open. Having received the law from God, Israel became not only God's law bearers, but also God's sin bearers. Because it was in the life of Israel, because of the law, that sin was fully seen to be sin. What was happening was that God was concentrating sin in one place. He was bringing sin into a place where he could deal with it. He was bringing it onto his people, a nation of priests representing humanity. We think of that phrase, a nation of priests, we think of them representing God to the world, which is, of course, one aspect of priesthood. But a priest works both ways. He also represents the people to God. And in this case, Israel, a nation of priests, represent the world to God in this, by through their sinfulness. They're no more sinful than the rest of humanity. They're simply fallen human beings. But 
this was how God called them to be his sin bearers representing humanity in the life of Israel the law enables sin to be seen as sin now that's quite a burden isn't it for them sometimes I think Gentile Christians like myself can have a tendency to think oh well why didn't the Jews recognize why didn't why did the Jews um, reject God so readily and, and not recognize what he was doing well we have to be careful Israel was God's sin bearers. If it were not for them, we wouldn't be here. Our sin wouldn't be dealt with. Because here's the glorious thing, and Paul doesn't unpack this right here. But when sin is now concentrated in one place, it can now be taken up by the great representative of God's people, as they in turn, as God's people represent humanity. The Christ, the Messiah, coming as team captain, takes up that burden of sin, that has been gathered up into one place so that it can be dealt with in one place, on the cross. Christ carries the burden and pays the penalty on behalf of God's people and so on behalf of the whole world and so on our behalf. The law might seem negative because it stimulates sin. But actually, it's the poultice drawing out the infection of sin so that it can be dealt with in Christ. And that, my friend, is genius. Hallelujah. This raises a question about our own attitude to God's word. The Bible, which includes the law... uh, um, Uh, We can refer to God's word slightly more wider and more generally. You know, we call ourselves evangelicals. We know God's word is so important to us. We believe the Bible to be God's word. And as Christian parents in particular, we want our children to grow up to know the Bible. That is good. That's important. But you know what? Knowing God's word in itself is just not enough. God's word needs to drive us to Christ if we're to be saved. God's word needs to drive our children to Christ if they're to be saved. And you know, as we teach our children, we could end up using God's word just to try and inculcate good morals to them rather than pointing to Christ. And if so, actually, that might make them even more resistant to being saved. That's no good. In our lives too. We can't stop at the word. We have to go to Christ. We need the spirit of Christ to work through God's word to bring full deliverance from sin. Both its penalty, yes, but also its power. And that's the, that's the context of chapters 6 and 7, isn't it? We cannot go on sinning so that grace may increase. That makes a, That's rubbish. Just, that's just, argument just doesn't stand up. If we're going to be delivered from sin, we're delivered from its power as well as its penalty to lead us into true life with God. So my question to you this morning, have you faced up to the reality of how dreadful your sin actually is? You might feel you're okay. Yes, you know you're not perfect, but you're not as bad as some. Friend, if that's your attitude... You haven't allowed that tenth commandment to search your heart for a start. Do not covet. Look at your heart. 
Just one commandment shows the sinfulness that condemns you, condemns all of us. The problem is not the others, it's me, it's you. Have you faced up to that reality that you need saving? And if so, what are you doing about it? Are you just trying harder? Are you running around manically trying to do good? Or are you leaning with all your weight on what Christ has done for you? Is your hope, your faith, your trust in him? Have you turned to him? Have you admitted your sin? Have you received his forgiveness and received his new life? You can do that right now, this morning. And now, are you following him? Forward into life, true life. As you read this grim passage, can you actually rejoice as you read it? Because you know that you can sing, I am a new creation. No more in condemnation. Here in the grace of God I stand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your good gift of the law which you gave to Israel. We thank you for the good gift, the very good gift of your word which you give to us. Thank you, Lord. We stand in awe of this, how actually, although the law in itself was powerless to break that bond with our sinful nature, how you used that to concentrate sin in one place and so deal with it. That is awesome. What an amazing God you are. What a tremendous plan of salvation you dreamt up. And that means from that one place, having been concentrated in that one place, your grace can extend to the whole world and it extends to us. And we thank you, Lord, that we stand in your grace, forgiven. And Lord, we pray for those of us who know you, we pray that the reality of this will, will grow on us so that, 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 that we will not let sin reign over us as we, we read in chapter 6. We will put it away. We will be transformed into the likeness of Christ. And Lord, for those who are watching who, who have not yet admitted their need of Christ as Saviour, just, our Lord, melt their resistance. Show them, Jesus, that he doesn't want to hurt their lives. He can give them more freedom, not less. Pray you'll help each one to turn to you. Father, you're so good to us. Thank you for each other too. Thank you for my brothers and sisters out there. And I pray your great enriching blessing on their lives. In Jesus' precious name, amen.